0: Good morning, Maranatha. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this privilege. We thank you for this privilege of being able to gather as your people to worship, to sing songs that remind us of who you are, to hear scripture being read, to pray, to hear from your word, Father, remind us that this is an absolute privilege that we receive by grace. We thank you, Father, once again, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that we have this opportunity to hear your word being preached, and we ask that your spirit would help us now. Left to our own, Lord, this is a waste of time. But we ask for your spirit to come and help us. That your spirit would soften our hearts and that as we hear your word being preached, it would take deep root in our hearts and that it would lead to fruit in our lives. We ask for that help. We thank you, Lord. We accept these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, good morning. An update before we jump into today's message. For the next couple months, we'll be having guest preachers coming in every so often to serve Maranatha, and you guys heard last week that Pastor Jeremy will be joining us in about a month and a half now. But in preparation for the Easter, the Good Friday Easter season, Pastor John and I will be going through a short series, and the series is going to focus on the four songs of the suffering servant in the book of Isaiah. And because we're jumping into this massive book, it would be really important for us to lay a little bit of groundwork so that we have an understanding of the context. So we have a slide here. You can just kind of use it as your own reference. Um, Just going to try to answer some basic questions to help build this framework, this groundwork. right. So who is Isaiah? And we see in the first verse of Isaiah 1, the son of Amos. And he served as a prophet for the southern kingdom known as Judah during the 8th century B.C. And his name means the Lord saves. And this is very fitting for the whole book. What's it like during Isaiah's time? Once again, Isaiah was a prophet. But he was a prophet during a period in Israel's history where there was constant rebellion, constant idolatry. The kings of Israel and Judah, the people of God, they've failed miserably. So then what's the message of Isaiah? What's the theme? The theme is this. God's promised judgment will come upon his people because of their disobedience. First to the northern kingdom, Israel, who will fall to Assyria. Then to the southern kingdom, Judah, who will fall to the Babylonians. But the Lord reassures through Isaiah that in the midst of all this judgment, there's a promised savior. There's a promised Messiah who will come to save, who will come to restore all things. So in what will be the most dark times in the history of God's people, the Lord reassures that he will save. So put all your hope in him. And it's important to note that throughout the book, there are cases where the word servant refers to Israel, the whole of God's people, who have failed to be a faithful servant. But there are also times in the book of Isaiah when servant refers to a singular representative, who refers to the promised Savior, the one who will perfectly obey God's law, who will bring salvation to the perfect sense, to the ends of the earth. And I want to be very clear from the get-go, as we just read in Matthew 12, this prophecy today of the servant in Isaiah 42 is referring to the single representative. Matthew clearly identifies Jesus as the servant of Isaiah. And I say this because I'll be switching back and forth from Jesus and the servant. So with these points in mind, I want to read once more the first song of the suffering servant. So please open up your Bibles, Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4, and follow along. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open as we go through the passage. Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 4. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, Justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. We'll learn from our passage this morning with three points. And the three points are the servant's relationship, the servant's mission, and the servant's manner. The servant's relationship, the servant's mission, and the servant's manner. First, the servant's relationship, verse 1. This servant is one who is upheld by the Lord God. In a literal sense, to uphold was to support, to hold up one another. And we see this word being used when Israel is at war in Exodus 17. It's here where Moses tells Joshua, go find men to go into battle with the Amalekites. And while Joshua and his men are fighting, Moses, Aaron, and her. They went up to the top of the mountaintop to witness the battle. And you may be familiar with the story. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone, put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands. One on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. But in our passage, uphold is not to be taken in a literal sense. The Lord God didn't have to uphold his servant Jesus as if Jesus was weaker or lesser or someone in need like Moses. What's being revealed here is that Jesus has the full support of God as Father. God the Father is in full agreement with Jesus. He fully backs up what his Son will come to do. What we see here is that there's unity within this relationship, a unity that I'll come back to address a little later. We also read that this servant is chosen. And this is very important because this means that Jesus is coming as servant. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't plan B. The Lord God, he wasn't thrown off by man's sin. He didn't have to scramble to figure out a solution in order to save his creation. We know this because of passages like Ephesians 1.4. Romans 9.23, which teach us that before the foundations of the world were set in place, there was a plan of salvation to save sinners. There was a plan to restore all things through this chosen servant, through Jesus. And it would be all done so that the riches of the Lord's glory would be made known. Jesus wasn't plan B. It wasn't a mistake that the servant had to come. Now, I am aware that this word chosen, when we hear it in church, it might make some feel uncomfortable, and it might make some even frustrated or angry. It shows up all throughout the Old Testament to refer to the Israelites, those whom God chose, those whom God elected to be a light unto the world. And this belief of God choosing God electing those he will save continues in the New Testament. And we might not have an issue so much with Jesus being chosen, but when it comes to God choosing sinners, if we're honest, some of us here, that's where it gets difficult. And I know, right? whenever I do a Q&A, particularly with the youth, 10 times out of 10, so 100% of the times, one of the questions is always, Did God really choose? Did God really elect those he will save? And I think it's a valid question. It's a difficult question. But when I have the opportunity to ask more questions to go deeper, more often than not, at the heart of that question is not biblical reasoning, but it's more fear. It's fear that they may not be chosen. It's fear that someone they love may not be chosen. And I want to encourage those who struggle with this. And not just this doctrine, not just this, because there are so many other doctrines. I want to encourage you to not ignore such fears. Don't just push them aside and just go on about your day. Instead, what I want to do, what I want to encourage you to do is to bring them before the Lord. Bring them before the Lord and consider the greatness of God. Bring such fears and consider God's greatness. What we read in Isaiah 55, 8-9 is this. God speaking through Isaiah, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Maranatha, God's infinite thoughts are far greater than our finite ability to comprehend them. We cannot confine our Lord God to our own human standards. He's far more wise, far more loving, far more gracious, far more merciful than you can imagine. So in other words, whatever you imagine the Lord to be, it's still far short of who the Lord really is it is still far short of the who the Lord really is. And as your pastor, I want to encourage you. I think this is one of the reasons why the church, the body of believers, is so important. I do think that we are wrongfully too quick to label one another. Right? Oh, hey, hey, that person doesn't believe in predestination. That person, not a complementarian. That person, not a this or that we quickly label one another based on a set of beliefs, forget that all of us are made in the image of God. What we may not realize that thinking in such a way it prevents us from the countless opportunities to come alongside someone, to point them to God's greatness, to carefully walk with them, to work through whatever doctrine, whatever challenge there may be. So may I encourage you, church, let's come before the Lord humbly. Consider God's greatness together. As we turn our attention back to the passage, we see the description of the relationship doesn't just stop there. We read that the Lord God delights in his servant. God the Father delights in his servant son, Jesus. And delight is not a foreign concept to us. We delight in what we love. We delight in seeing family members, friends, receiving good news because we love them. We delight in seeing our favorite sports teams succeed because we love them. I am delighted when I eat a really good taco Because I love them. When I go to California, seven out of the nine meals for three days is tacos, right? That's also part of the reason why I really, I tell the youth, don't eat Taco Bell. It is utter travesty, right? Utter travesty. God's delight is rooted in his deep love for a servant and notice that this deep love it's there even before the servant does anything Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus came and that means this deep love this deep delight it's always been there and this relationship is all topped off with the servant with with the spirit resting upon the servant God the Spirit rests upon God the Son, the chosen servant, Jesus. And the Spirit rests upon Jesus as the great helper. What we see here is this full affirmation. It's not just God the Father fully supporting the Son, but it's the Spirit fully supporting the Son. And in this one verse, in this one verse, we see this beautiful reality of the Trinity. One God in three persons. And it points to how God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are in perfect unity, working together for their glory. And it's easy for us to maybe just throw aside these lofty topics like Trinity. But I want to implore you to see that the Trinity, it's vital. It's vital for understanding God's character. It's vital for understanding God's purposes. It's vital for understanding his relationship with us. Yes, the Trinity, it's beyond our understanding, and we should not try to explain it using metaphors like water or pizza or three leaf clover. We just have to be okay. We don't understand it. It's beyond our limited ability. But what we see throughout the Bible is this there is a loving relationship that exists between the three persons, and this is the relationship that we are called into to enjoy. One author puts it this way. One of the most wondrous aspects of our salvation is that when God chooses to love his people, it is with love that is the same in character as the intra trinitarian love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What this means is that what Christ enjoys by nature as God's eternal Son we enjoy it by grace. In other words, the Father by grace and by grace alone showers on us the same love that he has for the Son. My concern is that many of us have hearts that have grown cold to this beautiful truth. We have hearts that have grown hardened to such Great love. But listen to First John 3:1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. See what kind of love. What an amazing love! What Christ enjoys by nature as God's eternal Son, we enjoy by grace that love is showered upon us as his people. What a beautiful truth about the greatness of God. And this is why Paul can refer to his fellow Colossian believers as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Believers like you and me, we can only be referred to in such a way because of who we are in Christ. Because we are united to Christ, united in Christ. So this loving relationship within the Trinity, that's what we are welcomed into by grace as, God, as adopted sons and daughters. We could go on and on just talking about that love. Right? How great is his love for us. So point one, once again, Servant's relationship. As we move on in our passage, we see now the servant's mission. Jesus, he has a mission. And our passage says that this mission is to bring forth justice to all nations. And we have to ask, what is this justice? Why is it so important? And as I studied this passage, what I learned is that one's understanding of justice is It's tied to who or what one worships. One's understanding of justice is tied to who or what one worships. All throughout Isaiah, God rightly accuses his own people of injustice after injustice, wrongdoing after wrongdoing. And here are just a few of the examples listed in Isaiah. Isaiah one they they're guilty of not defending the orphans and ignoring the care of widows. Isaiah 3.15. Grinding the face of the poor. Mistreating the poor. Isaiah 5.23. Taking bribes and depriving the innocent of their rights. Isaiah 59.3. Speaking lies and conceiving mischief and begetting iniquity. Isaiah 59.7. Their feet running to evil. Rushing to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts our thoughts of iniquity, desolation, and destruction. Injustice after injustice. But these acts of injustice are closely tied to their idolatry. And in the beginning of the book of Isaiah, it says this, their land, and this is God's people, their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. God's people abandoned the Lord to serve other gods of their own making, creating for themselves their own religion that was characterized by cruel, oppressive, evil practices. And as they worshipped what their own own hands had made, they created their own standards of justice. They created their own warped version of right and wrong. And it even got to the point where they justified sacrificing their own sons and daughters on the altars. One's understanding of what is right and wrong, one's understanding of justice, is tied to who or what one worships. So if we keep this in mind, I would boil down biblical justice into the following statement. Biblical justice is right living under the right Lord. Biblical justice is right living under the right Lord. If we consider human history, there has only been one time where justice reigned. It was when God first created the world. It was when Adam and Eve lived in Eden. When all that was created, it was pronounced to be very good. That was right living under the right Lord. But that all changed when they rebelled against God and sin entered the world. And injustices, and we don't have to look too far. Injustices we see have only multiplied since then. And just think about the first family. It's not like they just stole a couple things here and there or like, you know, they argue. The first family was ruined by murder. The first son murdered his brother. And it didn't seem like there was much hope for the following generations. But our passage teaches us that we are not without hope. Look at the repetition. The servant will bring forth justice to the nations. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will establish justice in the earth. This mission is repeated three times. And whereas those during Isaiah's time looked forward to the coming of the servant, we have this privilege, unique privilege of looking back, knowing that Jesus started his mission to bring forth justice through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And we can look forward knowing that he will return to establish it in full. That's what's promised here. So it's not a question of... Might it happen? No, it's a question of when. And there's going to come a time when every believer will be living rightly under the right Lord, and we won't know any other way. So what this means for us is this. Jesus' mission, it should spur us to pursue biblical justice as we wait for his return. And such justice, it calls us to look outward. And I believe one of the primary ways to spread biblical justice, it's discipleship. I'm guilty of this. I think there are many times when we undermine the power of discipleship. And what I mean by discipleship is any effort to help one another grow in Christ. And I undermine it because it doesn't produce fruit as quickly as I want. It's not as flashy as I think it should be. But we must take as God's people very seriously Jesus' command for us to go and make disciples. As believers, we're called to help one another live rightly under the right Lord. And this means that it's much bigger than just getting someone saved. It's helping others orient their whole lives in Christ. It's not just about a ticket out of hell into heaven. It's about helping others reorient their whole lives in Christ, for Christ, to Christ. So I ask you, church, how are you helping others to live rightly under the right Lord? How are you opening yourself up to others, to live rightly under the right Lord? In what ways are you encouraging one another to take part in restoring God's creation with your time and resources? In what ways are you encouraging others to be salt and light in the darkness? In what ways are you bringing along others to serve those in need? The questions go on and on. But What I believe is that as we multiply faithful disciples, We multiply biblical justice in this world. First point, servant's relationship. Second point, servant's mission. Lastly, the servant's manner. Verses two to four point to the manner in which Jesus will bring forth justice. And one word that came to mind as I read through this passage over and over was meekness. Jesus, the servant, is incredibly meek. You guys may know in Greek mythology, uh, there is a legend about a king named Midas, right? There is Midas, trust the Midas touch, right? The car repair. It's based on the story of this king. He was the wealthiest man of his time, but what he was most famous for was his Midas touch. The ability to turn everything he touched Into gold. Now, I don't know if you know someone who doesn't know how to control their own strength. I know someone. I live with that someone, right? And there's this running joke in our family where Sana, she doesn't have the Midas touch, uh, but she has the minus touch because she lowers the value of whatever she touches right i'm I'm constantly at hey why do you have to close your laptop so hard like why do you have to move such fragile cups bowls plates so roughly why do you close that cabinet door refrigerator door car door every door why do you close it so hard course on it right perks of being married to the best right Uh, what we see when we talk about meekness is this to be meek is to know your full strength but to control it to submit it for the sake of others to be intentionally gentle for others sakes in a biblical sense it's a submissive spirit toward god it's a submissive spirit towards God for the sake of others. And we see in verses 2 to 4 is this very picture. Several descriptions in this passage point to Jesus' meekness, point to such gentleness, humility. The mere fact that the Son of God is referred to as the servant indicates the humility of Christ. The fact that the servant won't draw attention to himself by making a ruckus. The fact that he won't throw himself a pity party so that everyone will know what he's doing. The imagery of the bruised reed and faintly burning wick some of the most fragile objects during biblical times, the gentleness required to make sure a bruised reed isn't broken, the careful attention required to make sure a faintly burning wick won't go out. All of these point to the meekness of the servant. All of these point to the meekness of Jesus all of this characterizes Jesus' affection towards sinners like you and me, towards those who are broken apart from Christ. One commentator writes the following, God's answer to the oppressors of the world is not more oppression, nor is his answer to arrogance more arrogance. Rather, in quietness, humility, and simplicity, he will take all of the evil into himself and return only grace. What we see here is true power. Yes, this servant is meek, but we're not to mistake it for weakness. Because we see in our passage, he will not grow faint. He will not be discouraged. He will endure. He will persevere. And he will see it to the end, even to the point of death. What we see is that the truest display of meekness is displayed on the cross. The servant suffers in our place. Jesus laid aside every right, Jesus laid aside his power to submit to the will of his father for our sake. If we're talking about justice, justice justice would require all of us to go to the cross. But through the gospel, this is not the case. The good news is this, that Jesus establishes justice on our behalf by bearing God's judgment upon himself in our place. And it's only through this suffering servant that sinners like you and me will be restored. And it's through this suffering servant who's raised victorious that everything that was made wrong by sin it will one day be made right. He will see his mission to establish justice to the end. This is the picture that we have of the suffering servant. And as we close, I want to turn our attention to the first word in our passage: "Behold. Behold. Maranatha, what are you beholding? The Lord makes it very clear: Behold the servant. Give your full attention to this servant. If you look at the previous passages in Isaiah, the people of God, they're experiencing God's judgment because of their persistence in beholding idols. Their hearts, they were captivated by the idols. Their hearts gave full attention to these created, worthless idols. When we see is this, it led to death. All of that led to death. But in our passage, God gives his people a better person to behold. The servant who is fully supported by God the Father and God the Spirit. The meek servant who will establish justice, not through worldly power, but through his own death. He gives us his servant, his very own own son for us to behold. So I ask you, man, who are you beholding? What are you beholding? One of my favorite parables is found in Luke 18. Jesus' teaching writes, he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. I love that detail in that parable, standing far off. That tax collector believes he has absolutely no business being in the presence of God. He thinks God will treat him the same way the rest of society has treated him. Yet what we see in this passage is that he's the one who's welcomed. He's the one who receives grace from Christ. And what I fear is that many of us think and feel the same way. We're standing far off waiting to be in a little better place, waiting to be a little less broken, waiting to be a little less weak, we stand off in the distance, believing that you have no business coming before the Lord. And I want to remind you, the God you're beholding there isn't the Lord that's revealed in his word. we see once again a beautiful picture of the suffering servant who welcomes all you who are weak, all you who are brokenhearted, come to him. So, Marineth, I ask you once again, who, what are you beholding? I'm going to ask that we, we're going to do things a little differently this morning, and I want to give you guys a moment to reflect on that very question. Who or what are you beholding? Take some time to meditate. Take some time to to pray to the Lord. And the praise team is going to come on up, and we'll go straight into singing. We're going to sing a song, Turn Your Eyes to Jesus. Would you behold Christ? So let's take some time, church, to bow our heads, to reflect, to meditate. Who, what are you beholding?